0: Six foot six above sea level, I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low no power frequency, radio modulation, the big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places, truth is never Good afternoon before. and welcome we to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Charlie Pittman. I'm filling in today for your regular host, Estee denure As a quick note, today's program is pre-recorded. What color would you use to signify our times, an age with multiple overlapping crises from the climate crisis to the pandemic to international war and crumbling infrastructure at home? Well, our guest today is a cultural theorist, and she says safety orange is the symbol of the cultural present in the United States. She says the color signifies the extremes of state oversight and abandonment. Excess and Dereliction Under Neoliberal Capitalism. My guest today is Anna Watkins Fisher. She's a social and cultural theorist and associate professor of American culture at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. She's the author of several books, including The Play in the System, The Art of Parasitical Resistance. And she's co-editor of the second edition of New Media, Old Media, A History and Theory Reader. But she's joining us today to talk about a different book. It's called Safety Orange. And it was published in 2021. Anna Watkins Fisher. Welcome to a public affair.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
0: So the thesis of your book is that safety orange has lost its meaning under neoliberalism and capitalism. You use this line that I love that safety orange uh, is a signifier of our times and the color itself spectacularized crises and impedes action. Can you talk about the thesis of,
1: of this book? Happy to. So as you said in your um, sort of opening, I say in the book that if the US present was a color, it would be safety orange. And safety orange is a color that we're all familiar with, even if we haven't given it much thought. It's the color of traffic cones, uh, prison jumpsuits, pandemic, disaster alerts. We see it all the time. And if we use the color as a lens for understanding America today, I'm really interested in asking what is it that we see. So the first thing we need to kind of understand is what the origins of this color is. So safety orange first emerged in the US in the 1950s as a color standard for warning that was showing up in technical manuals and federal regulations. And it was chosen interestingly for the hue's Extreme contrast with nature. So, you have this very artificial color, and it is interesting for regulators because it is so against nature. And so, for roadways, orange traffic cones and road signs are what really stand out against blue sky. So, they're going to stand out to drivers against this presumed blue sky. Within the kind of realm of hunting, officials chose the color standard for hunting vests and other safety gear for its ability to stand out against the kind of browns and greens of the natural environment. So originally, this is a color that was chosen to perform a very specific function in a very specific situation. But it's when it starts to become kind of everywhere and starts to lose its effectiveness, it becomes much more complicated. And so that's what I'm really interested in in the book. I'm interested in you know, where we are with this color today when it seems to sort of blanket our landscape. And I talk about how the color signals urgency, but is oddly unspecific, right? I talk about how it's informational without really being informative. So today, safety orange is really no longer a sign of um, immediate danger, but is more, I argue, a symbol of perpetual risk. It's on our phones, it's on our screens, it's on our roads, and it's acquired a different function. So ultimately what I'm interested in is how, while traffic cones and orange alerts may purport to keep us safe, they often have the opposite effect. They often normalize and attune us to accept life under a chronic state of high alert.
0: Well, I wanna talk more about the traffic cone. So you're based in Michigan, right? Which is the home of the car. But you start off the book with an adage about the traffic cone becoming known as the state flower um, and, and used as the punchline for a joke. Then you discovered that that joke isn't just specific to Michigan, but that's a pretty broad joke for a lot of different states. What did that discovery signify?
1: Right. Um, this is definitely a project I don't think I would have begun if I didn't move and move to Michigan and live here. It's definitely a project that's very much inspired by being near Detroit. And there's interesting things to say about Detroit and Orange, and I'll come back to that. But indeed, I've lived in the Midwest for almost a decade now as a professor at U of M, even though I'm originally from North Carolina, and one of the first things I noticed when I moved here was how much road work there is. And I don't know actually what it's like in Madison. I'm curious. Same um, way, every summer, I, you know. <laughs> I'm not in there. So constant construction everywhere you look, you know, and this is a Rust Belt state where maybe perhaps more than other states i would lived in before, there seemed to be a kind of crisis in wide scale, even abandonment of infrastructural repair. Um, and this is an infra- a kind of, problem that is very deeply connected to the history of white flight and large-scale divestment from Detroit as whites largely abandoned the inner city of Detroit in the second half of the 20th century, taking their money with them. And we still see this, um, even though I live in a more affluent part of Southeast Michigan and Ann Arbor, this is quite present, this history. We live we live in this in this history. And if you go on the highway, you see it, and you certainly see it when you go into Detroit. So when I heard this joke about how the state flower of Michigan is the traffic cone, I laughed. But when I tried to see where the joke came from, I saw, as you said, that this localism is actually one that's you know shared by many, many states. You can find memes online of residents making this joke in Ohio, Indiana, Montana, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Texas, Florida, and so forth. So I really began to think about how this supposedly kind of insider joke is a symptom of something more pervasive in the United States and something that prevents itself as local and situated. And I found this paradox really interesting. How is it that this color makes you feel like it's speaking to you and it's speaking to you about a specific situation when that seems to be really an important part of the kind of trick of the color? So orange makes you think that things are temporary In America, things are on their way to being better, right? Or so we would like to think when orange increasingly describes and particularly describes for people who are, you know, the working poor, people of color, a state that is not temporary but chronic. So while safety orange may increasingly be ubiquitous, something that we're seeing more and more across the country, safety orange is also concentrated unevenly in certain communities, neighborhoods, and regions more than others.
0: And so to round out the analogy with a traffic cone, under your reading, a traffic cone, an orange traffic cone that's sitting there month after month could signify not just that, hey, take warning, but also it fades into the background Meanwhile, that pothole or that infrastructure break isn't getting filled. And in fact, we are living in massive disinvestment in infrastructure with lots of infrastructure needing to be replaced. But that's a very large problem. It's easier just to think, I'm going to avoid this pothole.
1: Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started to notice the traffic cone because it was unavoidable. But once I noticed it, I was really struck by the kind of logic of it. I was really struck by how the traffic cone in particular, as opposed to say an orange, you know, slow down sign or a drive slowly when workers are present, even though I have thoughts about that, something that is explicit, right, that tells you something, the orange traffic cone just sits there. And I was really curious about how it would sit on the road with no real attempt to indicate exactly why it was there. But it really struck me that the traffic cone leaves it to the driver or to the passerby to have to do the mental guesswork to figure out what they're supposed to worry about, what they're supposed to be vigilant about, what they're supposed to avoid. And I'd been interested for some time as a scholar in kind of questions about visual culture and aesthetics of what has been called neoliberal life. For those who may not be as familiar with this term, neoliberalism um, is often defined as describing uh, something that's happened over recent decades, where there has been a divestment from public infrastructure. But neoliberalism is also really associated with this idea of putting the burden on the individual citizens, as you were as you were getting at. You know, without a working bus system, getting to work on time is your problem, right? It's not the states. And this solitary traffic cone seemed to me to be this kind of perfect encapsulation of how neoliberalism works today in the US. It's a a kind of subtle sleight of hand, a way of making citizens internalize the state's withdrawal of its responsibility to their well for their well being. So it's kind of not urging us to stop as we're approaching it, but just to proceed at our own risk. And I think so much is happening in that, that shift. So when broken roads aren't eventually fixed, things like random traffic cones beside potholes are kind of stopgap measures that, you know, kind of band-aids, infrastructural band-aids, I call them in the book, that make passersby accountable for avoiding danger and even liable for negative outcomes if they don't, whether or not any kind of safe alternate route is provided. So I really started to realize that safety orange is what the state leaves behind When it recedes from view, it's a kind of minimal, the most minimal kind of possible form of care, Um, a tool that the government can use to warn citizens of hazards and disrepair while placing responsibility of their safety on them.
0: While we're talking about public infrastructure, and, and the use of orange within road infrastructure in particular. You know, I have the the book right here. It's actually a very small, slim book. A lot of the pages have many footnotes on them. And I noticed that you, you read a lot of road manuals for this. This <laughs> is backed up by research. Can you just tell us a little bit about all the road manuals and guiding documents that you read
1: through for this? Oh, I couldn't tell you in any specificity. They washed over me, but I... I thought it was really important that it was a standard. And I thought it was really important that I understood what the rationale was for the choices around it um, in these fields that I'm so not familiar with as a a humanist, right? These are disciplines and fields that are quite alien to me, but I was interested in seeing how it was described and what the reasons were technically and formally that that it was selected. And I think there is something really important about the fact that it is this color of bureaucracy. And I can talk more about that because it's related to the way that it acts on people and populations. One thing I'll say, and it, it kind of gets at something that you mentioned earlier, one thing I saw in, in one of the kind of roadway manuals that I looked at was this very careful calibration of a color and a sign that would attract a driver's attention from far away, but would also oddly blend in. And that strange, contradictory tension is really what animates this color for me. It's supposed to both warn and blend. It's supposed to both excite and dull in a sense. And I found that very interesting in the way that that's even in the kind of formal architectures of it in the kind of bureaucratic language around its development.
0: Well, you mentioned a couple items for us to follow up on, but before we do, I want to just mention that we're talking on WORT Madison. The show is a public affair. We're talking this hour with Anna Watkins Fisher. She's a social and cultural theorist, and her book is titled Safety Orange. The show is pre-recorded, so we can't take your calls this hour, although I suppose we can um, just call in uh, 608-256-2001 and relay them on to me or have the receptionist relay it on to me. And I'm sure folks will have thoughts. So uh, Anna Watkins-Fisher, you mentioned that you also had thoughts about a sign. The sign is drive slowly when workers are present. There's kind of a duality to that sign. Tell me more.
1: Yeah. So when workers are present is... A strange thing to be told, right? Be prepared to slow or stop when workers are present. It doesn't tell us that workers are present. It tells us that we need to kind of be accountable for all possible scenarios. And I think it's kind of similar to, and I talk about this in the book, it's similar to some other kinds of signs that we often see, even, you know, like say in a public restroom, like, slippery when wet. And these are signs, and I think what's interesting about these is they are kind of permanently there rather than temporarily. And they don't actually call attention to an actual present danger, but rather they call attention to the need for us to manage the possibility of of danger. And they do that by effectively making the um, citizen have to kind of step into this space of accountability you know, it's not that the slippery when wet sign is like a, you know, one of those tent signs that they used to put out just when the floor had been mopped. It's now that the sign is hanging on the wall. And so in the book, I'm really interested in that switch where it goes from being, okay, this is in context to this is permanent. And it's really on you to figure out whether or not it's a sign that you need to worry about or not.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting, and I think it's the job of a cultural theorist to think about signs and what they're actually telling us. Signs we don't actively tend to think about a lot. I'm wondering if you can take a moment to just kind of explain what it means to be a cultural theorist. Most of us aren't thinking about visual culture so much, but this book uses a color, as you said, as a lens through this kind of creep into perpetual problems and individual responsibility under neoliberalism. Can you just talk about what cultural theorists do? If folks are listening who are like, what are they talking about? Traffic cones, right? Right. What what plane are we thinking about?
1: Well, okay. I mean, this is also a question kind of about what it means to be an academic today. And I think it's a really important question. And there's always this kind of You know, issue around like, why do you need to use this complex term? And I remember really wondering about that when I started graduate school. And this is a question that's posed about theory as we're talking about it this sort of language of theory and what it does. And I would say for me, I came to the conclusion that it's actually helpful to have a little bit of a different language than our usual language to talk about things because it enables us sometimes to say things that aren't already being said. And it enables us to see things that we may see all the time, but see them a little bit differently. And so the the joy and the pleasure of, of doing theory for me is to try to come up with frameworks or concepts that help me understand things differently than I would have before, that kind of reorganize the world but make things that seem disconnected, seem connected suddenly. And this is a, really a moment of crisis for academia, right? It's really, people are really coming at us, you know, with politicians and everything that's happening in the news. And there's this idea that we don't know how to defend ourselves, um, our value. And I would say the value is profound, at least for my life, it has been because it's given me a language for seeing the way the world works that is not actually in the news, that isn't actually widely available, that is very different than the narratives that we are sold over and over again. And it's it's kind of over and under the conversation that tends to be happening um, more in a more mainstream way. So I don't know, that's the beginning of how I might answer that.
0: that. That was really helpful. I just had a moment where I was like, if I was just tuning in, it might help to understand what what a cultural theorist does uh, before we go further, because we're about to leap from the tangible into more of the intangible. So the oomph of your thesis is not just that safety orange has lost its original meaning. It's also redirected responsibility for safety back on the individual. Tell us why that's a problem. What does it say about neoliberalism and the structure that we live in when it comes to big problems like the climate crisis?
1: Great question. Very important question. I mean, I I would say when you think about climate change, one of the biggest problems is this strategy that's been employed for decades, where instead of, say, diminishing toxic production, plastic companies tell us that the solution is recycling. There's many examples of this. Obviously, this is a way of displacing responsibility back on the individual. It's a fallacy that enables companies and governments not to be accountable, not to have to forge ahead and find these solutions. It's a distraction tactic. It's, of course, true in some kind of um, minor scale, but it really is not, as we've seen just now with COP28 and the need to really address Seriously, fossil fuel and the you know the oil and gas industry, and not just talk about you know these kind of minor alternatives. So I think it's a way of displacing focus, and so we can see how the disrepair of public roads that we've been talking about, or the rise of extreme heat across the planet, um, or bad air quality, these all become kind of problems for individuals who are asked to pay attention as the solution, right? To be more vigilant. And the kind of classic example of this, and I talk about this in the book, of this kind of way of thinking is is very much linked to um, the Homeland Security Advisory System that was introduced by the Bush administration in uh, 2002. And I'm sure many of your listeners will remember that in the decade following 9-11, it was common to hear announcements that the national threat level was orange throughout U.S. airports. So over the eight-year period when the the system was in place, the threat level actually was never reduced to low green or guarded blue um, and was only once raised to red. So, you know, what this system did was it it effectively was telling us we are constantly at high alert. We are constantly at orange. So while the system was created to convey a wide range of threat levels, right, like a rainbow of primary colors, elevated and high threat warnings became the norm. And we're accompanied by no actionable steps for citizens to follow, right? This is also really important. And what this does is it effectively desensitizes the public to the warning system that they're meant to be hypersensitive to. So today, you know, things work very much in the same way, I think, even though that system has been long gone. um, Many, you know, felt this way as, you know, the early months of the pandemic raged on, And citizens were largely kind of left to their own devices to make sense of risk maps with often confusing and limited federal guidance. So we have never had greater access to information, right? All of the apps and all of the um, resources that we have at our disposal, right? Real-time data science visualizations, coronavirus contagion maps, climate warnings of air quality, heat indexes, it's all there all flashing in various kind of varying intensifying levels of orange, varying intensifying levels of danger. And these are sold to us as empowering. And in the book, I kind of question that, this idea that knowledge is power, maybe not. Not when we aren't actually given the means to act or the kind of ability to make sense of what exactly the kind of danger is that's being posed. So we're overwhelmed with information that we have very limited means to do anything about because the scale of what needs to be done is beyond our capacity as individuals. Now let's
0: talk about that when it comes to COVID. You write about in the context of COVID heat maps, um, when orange kind of signifies this impending crisis, take note, take precautions, you the individual, because the rollout uh, systemically hasn't been great, but then the crisis came and the government just added more colors to represent the, the situation getting worse. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I appreciate you bringing up the gradient map because that is this supposedly kind of intuitive way of of uh, mapping risk, and it was very prevalent during the pandemic to see gradient maps, even though it, it was understood to be between green and red we would see them essentially just be varying shades of orange. And I'm thinking, say, about the New York Times map. And so um, in the book, I talk about something really strange that started to happen with these pandemic risk maps in the early days of the pandemic. So in December 2020, after the U.S. had essentially driven off the cliff of red, which was already on the outer edge of possible, according to the limits that were already in the map, um, that was kind of previously an extreme limit, right? Represented on the map to represent extreme danger. Data experts had to introduce a new color. Um, They were left with no other choice than to introduce this new color to signify this newly unprecedented level of danger as the U.S. turned eggplant on the world map. So I find this really interesting. By resetting this outer boundary of risk of danger of the color scale it had been you know yellow then orange it was red red is you know very intuitive right red is danger red is blood that would seem to be the absolute outer limit when it then became dark purple the data visualization kind of broke broke down in a sense the the ability to measure the severity by which the data can even be comprehended breaks down so when red no longer marks the outer limit we find ourselves in a data field of undefined parameters where unheated warnings appear to yield no visible consequences, only more latitude when that color is added. And what's really interesting is that the same thing is happening right now with climate heat maps. Just last week, a UK climate scientist reported that because temperatures were so unprecedentedly high, in 2023, that he also had to add an entirely new color to his existing color set of vertical bars that he uses to visualize how the planet is heating. And so what I argue in the book is that this kind of arbitrary extension of new limits is really problematic because it breaks any kind of goodwill attempt to um, communicate danger to the public. And it's very reminiscent, actually, of when Um, Under that Bush-era Homeland Security advisory system that we were talking about before, when in 2003, then Homeland Security Secretary Tom Ridge actually raised the national alert level to orange, the threat warning was followed by a statement by him to citizens to actually continue with their holiday plans. So the message was one of remaining generally terrified, right, but also one of not altering your plans, and in and your actions in any real way. And this has really kind of come home today where these kinds of public risk indicators show themselves to be tools by which forms of capitalist risk are treated as infinitely elastic um, and sustainable in a sense if minor measures are taken. Always orange, never red. Oh, but if Red, never dark red, but if dark red, okay, never black and so on. And then we're in a circle. So safety orange symbolizes this, this kind of stretching threshold of risk, right? Where it light orange, dark orange, it's all risk and it seems to have no limit. So even as we're told that things are dire um, and that climate change is real and that's happening faster than we expected and it's going to be worse than we expected by, say, the UN reports, climate reports... We aren't told to stop. We're told to continue with business as usual. Right. Even when there's um, an
0: actual danger that has happened that we're fully in the red zone. I mean, that wasn't the only time in the Bush administration where we were told to just continue on. After 9-11, President Bush urged people to go shopping for their families. Right. The
1: economy marches on. And that's business as usual. Right. That 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 phrase um, the new normal is a kind of other way of saying that. That really became um, ubiquitous um, in the early years of the pandemic. So, yeah.
0: You know, other theorists of language uh, talk about thought terminating cliches and how they're used. Uh, they're common phrases to stop any further inquiry. Um, would you call safety orange sort of a thought terminating color? Mm.
1: Wow, that's such an interesting point. Yeah, I think so. I would. I mean, it really is about this. I mean, it's funny, we were talking about it as a stopper, right? As something that stops and grabs attention, but it, it kind of is attention getting and also sort of stupefying. And I think that instead of giving you kind of, you know, specific actions, it's giving you this almost kind of sublime kind of thing to contemplate. So I think that that's That's right. I think that that's a big part of it.
0: This is a good opportunity to just remind folks that I'm in conversation with cultural and social theorist Anna Watkins Fisher. She's the author of a book called Safety Orange, which sort of uses one color as a lens to interpret how attention and care is distributed under neoliberalism. As a reminder, the show is pre-recorded, so we can't take live calls. My name is Shali Pittman. I'm filling in for SD De on this edition of A Public Affair. Anna Watkins Fisher, let's shift to the artistic realm Um, as someone studying visual culture, I'd imagine and was indeed uh, not surprised to find a discussion of certain artists um, in this in this work. You write about how the the power of safety orange to call attention to things hasn't been lost on artists who have used the color as a way to, for example, point out state violence, point out state abandonment of people. How effectively these artists did so depends on your interpretation. And so there's nuance to a lot of um, the the artists and their artworks that you talk about. So take me through just a couple. Let's start with Object Orange, which again, um, it hits close to home for you. It's a, a project by a group of anonymous artists in Detroit. Why don't you take it from
1: there? Right. So um, a part of my method, even as a media theorist, has always been to really kind of look to contemporary artists and to try to think with them and and kind of through their work. Um, And this project was no different. Um, There were two works that I was uh, particularly interested in um, and really got me thinking about the color. One was this work by um, a group called Object Orange. And um, another was a work called A Color Removed by the artist Michael Rakowitz. And so at the end of the book, I turn to these artworks that are kind of audaciously and, you know, with varying degrees of success, attempting to retool the rhetoric of the color, right, as to try to force the state to make good on its promise of public safety. Um, and, and what's important to me about about thinking through these works is not to sort of say whether they're they're right or wrong, good or bad, but to think through, some of the, the kind of like really difficult questions that they raise about allyship, about race, about who can speak for others, who can, who has the ability or the, even the desire to try to use Safety Orange as, a, as an artistic tool um, and for whom is it not um, a tool um, that has any kind of um, appeal. And I can kind of explain what I mean by that. Um, but just to tell you about these two projects, so in the mid 2000s, um, this anonymous group of artists called Object Orange began painting abandoned homes in Detroit um, this color uh, called Tiggerific Orange. It was from um, the paint series um, by Bear. I think they had a Disney paint series. Um, and the groups, so it's this really bright color orange and they're painting these um, really um, kind of um, you know derelict homes, this color, and they're doing it kind of under the dark of night Um, kind of coming in doing the painting and then leaving the community these are artists who um you know didn't live in the neighborhoods that they were working in and even though they're anonymous i was able to talk to one of them and so they sought to draw attention to the city's pervasive urban blight choosing to paint um, particularly abandoned homes that were visible from the highway um and one of them told me that um this was in order to, um, with the aim of attracting attention, uh, particularly of white suburban drivers that would that li- would live in the suburbs and drive through Detroit and would other, you know, might otherwise completely overlook these homes. And you know, the kind of idea was that they were doing this to pressure the city to tear these homes down, and in, in a kind of solidarity with these neighborhoods um, where there had been complaints about, you know, them continually being used, being dangerous for children. Um, so, of course, this project and these artists um, avow this, you know, they are very conscious of these these kind of the naughty kind of um, difficult issues around the project because, you know, this is a kind of uh, a very different kind of project than, you know, a, a community that themselves is doing something like this. This is a situation where these are artists that are going in and doing something on behalf of a community, but with not with, not with their consent. And, of course, you know, there's all kinds of questions about... Whether it is ethical for them to say re- reorganize the the sort of city priorities of Detroit by putting more pressure on the city to tear these down, than use those funds for something else. I mean, it, it kind of unspools a lot of different questions. In the same vein, um, a color removed the project by Michael Rakowitz, you know, which took place in Cleveland, also raised a lot of difficult questions. You know, this is a project um, that was. In response to the killing of Tamir Rice, who um, the child who had been killed in the park in Cleveland and by police um, and um, who police had said um, that they did that because they thought that um, a toy gun that he was holding was a real gun because it, according to them, didn't have the orange Trigger that would um, say, would show that it's a child's toy. And of course, this is um, ridiculous. And um, in response, the artist set about a conceptual community based project that had the aim of removing all of the orange from the city of Cleveland. This is a kind of a fantastic kind of idea, but a, a, a kind of imagined uh, project in removing all of the items in Cleveland that are orange, the idea would be that they would kind of remove the possibility of safety in solidarity with Rice. You know, essentially what he did was collect lots and lots of different objects that were um, really bright orange and display them in a gallery and do that, you know, sort of in conversation with Tamir Rice's family and try to see if there could be um, conversations about, state violence, and anti-Blackness, and um, who is given safety and who is denied safety that could result from this project.
0: And that both of those cases are examples where, as you said, are kind of naughty or didn't unfold exactly, you know, got pushback and criticism from some people in the community, but maybe more endorsed by others or, you know, so these are thorny questions, just like everything in the art world and
1: everything in in culture. Um, Well, a lot of the questions were about who has the right to use this color and who has the right To sort of speak for others and um, particularly when it has to do with uh, state trauma. And and I think, you know, these are really difficult and important questions. You know, I think one thing that might be helpful for listeners to kind of understand is um, more about the way that the color, why certain artists wouldn't want to take up this color. So, you know, Rakowitz and Object Orange are not part of the communities in which they are intervening um, and are intervening from their positionalities. Okay, Object Orange is anonymous, but these are artists who, you know, don't live in inner city Detroit and are, you know, very conscious of the fact that they are coming into these spaces. Um, Rakowitz is coming into Cleveland for this project and, you know, is not part of the community in which he's working. Um, Also, there's these questions um, that have been raised, you know, really consistently in our history and and our criticism about appropriation and particularly around the kind of spectacles of black death. Right. Um, And so, you know, what I really look to and thinking through this is a number of African-American contemporary artists who have used Safety Orange, but in a very particular way. They've used it to highlight the routinized surveillance of black bodies and the systemic racial violence in America. Um, so I'm thinking about artists like David Hammons, Cameron Rowland, um, Hank Willis Thomas, Colleen Smith, um, and the late uh, William Popel. Um, And all of these artists have different works um, that I talk about in the book that all kind of use essentially safety orange, right? A really bright orange and often thematized through the bright orange jumpsuit to deal with the relationship between anti-Black state violence and mass incarceration. And so I'm interested in, ultimately in the book, in the racial logic of safety orange, right? I began by saying that it's a bureaucratic color standard, but it's really one that is ultimately... Deeply, deeply connected to state anti blackness in the US.
0: I really appreciate you bringing that up because part of your thesis is that there is an uneven distribution of safety and care, and that Safety Orange helps. Us understand that. And so when we're talking about where uh, care has been lacking, none more present than in mass incarceration and the bright orange of the the prison jumpsuit. Now, I think I, I was surprised to learn this and I actually learn this from anti-incarceration advocates locally, but we didn't always used to have the orange jumpsuit. People used to be able to wear blue jeans, khakis, like their day-to-day clothes, if they were incarcerated. No longer. We, of course, have the ubiquitous, um, or at least in the cultural consciousness, the ubiquitous orange prison jumpsuit. And you talk about how this has changed over time and what it signifies. What do you argue that this adoption of the uniform standard of the orange jumpsuit for people who are incarcerated, what does that signify?
1: Yeah, this is a good question. So, in the 1970s, prisons uh, began to use orange uniforms for incarcerated individuals in special detention situations. So like, for example, in temporary facilities or during transit, um, and they use it to mark a deviation from the norm, right, to flag the wear for extra surveillance. By the 90s, the U.S. prison system had introduced orange jumpsuits into regular use, And after 9-11, these same orange jumpsuits were worn by Guantanamo Bay detainees. Um, And what's really important about that is that the U.S. military uh, released photos of these detainees wearing these jumpsuits. So there's a really important connection between visibility and power that's happening with the orange jumpsuit. So while orange is not the color standard for all prison jumpsuits or all prison uniforms, it is the color that signifies quote unquote, prisoner in the public imagination. And it's used as a shorthand for incarceration in film and television and shows like Orange is the New Black. Um, And so the adoption of the orange jumpsuit into the public visual vernacular is really important symbolically, because it's a way of announcing the sovereign power of the U.S. and that power's Essentially, it's the, the state's right to act on a body, to hold a body indefinitely, like we're seeing in Guantanamo, to, you know, to enact discipline um, and even to, uh, I mean, not right, but even like its ability to kill. Um, so as, you know, history shows us, these have often been bodies of people of color. And that is why, you know, the artists that I mentioned, artists like da- David Hammonds, Cameron Rowland and so forth. Um, are really staging in their work a representation of the re- relationship of mass incarceration and state uh, racism to the Black body. But notably, unlike the artists that we were talking about before they are trying to essentially appropriate Safety Orange to try to do something different with it, to make it a tool, that doesn't seem to be something that... Um, these artists are at all interested in that they're not, um, I think, interested in in sort of appropriating the color, um, but rather in revealing it for what it is and all of the kind of um, violence of its uh, representational um, power. And so the the bright orange jumpsuit is a kind of way of doing that, a way of attuning us to this logic and way of its hypervisibility unevenly, you know, as you were saying, subjects certain bodies and populations to this gaze and to the whims of state power more than others. So you end on a slightly positive
0: note, not sure sh- not sure that's the fairest characterization. A non non-cynical, maybe hopeful note perhaps, that uh, if we restore the meaning of safety orange. We might be able to do something about the inequitable distribution of safety and protection in the United States. Essentially that we might be able to take action. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that. What do you what would symbolize taking action? What color would be the optimist future?
1: I love this question. What color would be the optimist future? And I think maybe it's counterintuitive, but I think red is the optimist color. And I end the book with a call to see red, not just see orange. In other words, to, you know, reanimate, re um, sort of empower the, the limit of what is acceptable risk and what is um, not acceptable risk. Um, in other words, um, to really mark danger rather than keep ala- making it elastic. And to fight those that do and to see, you know, even in just in our ability, you know, as kind of citizens to see when people are doing that and that they're doing it for their own um, objectives. And those objectives are not necessarily a good for for um, the population in a moment of really accelerating climate um, crisis. We need to insist as much as possible on a, a kind of politics of action and of regulation and even of, you know, revolution, the kind of red of revolution, the red of, um, of kind of like stopping the machine. And so, yeah, that would be, that would be what, whatever optimism there is in doing that at the same time, you know, my current work is really trying to think through why that is so difficult, why it feels so not possible, you know, to kind of pull up the the emergency break and, you know, stop the endless kind of spectrum of kind of risk. And I think, um, you know, I, th- I've been really interested in my current kind of project that is extending the work of Safety Orange and trying to really think through, you know, and really kind of like specific terms why that seems so difficult.
0: Yeah, it takes a lot of energy, actually, to See red, yeah, getting angry. Set up
1: not to make that possible. Yeah,
0: revolution is actually
1: difficult. It's been sort of designed out of the machine in, in a way. Um, and so that's the system that we're contending with.
0: Well, uh, before we go, is there anything else that you'd like to add to this conversation? Or would you like to talk more about what you're you're working on now? Do, should we expect a book in the next couple of years? You seem to publish pretty quickly. You had one in 2021. Well, I-
1: the, the project I'm working on now that I was just talking about, um, I thought that Safety Orange was a kind of one off. I thought it was just a random curiosity that I wanted to get out of my system. But I actually think it's really central to this question that, you know, I'm interested in about why it seems like the possibility of saying no or saying stop or resisting or dissenting seems so difficult and seems like it indeed has been kind of designed out of our everyday devices and infrastructures. Um, And so that's what I'm working on next is something that is looking at, you know, how our, you know, machines, our laptops, our computers, our phones, but also how our roads, um, so many of the kind of um, objects that populate our, our kind of everyday world are really designed to not let us stop, dislike, turn off, um, but are defaulted, to keep going, to like, um, to stay on. I mean, we can even think about for folks who are on dating apps but want to get off, how instead they're offered pause, right? And when, you know, you want to turn off, say, your phone and instead you get standby or sleep mode. Um, so I'm really interested in thinking about the ways that this kind of, um, you know, keep, keep going is built into our kind of everyday technological um, infrastructures. So that's, that's what's next for me.
0: So Anna Watkins Fisher, uh, our time is counting down, but this has been such a fabulous conversation. It's been a real pleasure for me to turn on Do Not Disturb and go into focus mode with you while we talk about this slim but very powerful book called Safety Orange. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's been an
1: absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a public affair. My name is Sholly Pittman. Thank you for joining us this hour. Thanks also to producer Jade Iseri Ramos and engineer Summer Koff for getting the show on the air today. Melon Floyd is coming up next. You're listening to Community Radio WORT Madison.